0: and song for us there of the awe we should feel towards God. It's not just about knowing the stories of the Bible. It's about knowing him. And so thank you for reminding us. I hope you'll take to heart what she was just singing and keep that in mind all week long. I think we can almost just have a little invitation and go home from there and think about that one this week. Do we really know the holiness of God? I'm glad to see you this morning. Happy New Year's Eve. So I hope you all have a good Christmas. I hope you're all looking forward to the new year here. This, I'm thankful for this year we've had together, excuse me, it's hard for me to believe we're at the end of 2017 already, it's hard for me to believe that I've been here for over a year now and that, excuse me, that we're starting 2018, tomorrow, so much we can be thankful for as we come to the end of the new year and start the next year. And I'm excited about what God's doing in our midst, and I'm excited about what He's going to do in this upcoming year. We don't know the future, but I trust that God has big things for us in terms of how He's going to keep growing us and stretching us as we understand more of who He is and more of understanding His holiness and the very things, excuse me, that Ashley was just singing about. As we think about New Year's, it is New Year's Eve day. Think about New Year's, what normally comes to mind? We normally think about a lot of things, whether it's getting together with family or friends, or trying to pull the late night. If you're like us, we're done before midnight and already in bed. But whatever it is you think about with New Year's, one thing that typically comes to mind for a lot of people are resolutions. Because a lot of people, believers and non-believers alike, make resolutions. Now, what are resolutions? They are simply determinations of actions we're going to take. We determine that we're going to do something for the new year. That's kind of why I dread the gym starting next week, because a lot of people show up who have decided they haven't done it in years, but they're going to show up tomorrow because they have a new year's resolution that they're going to work out. Why do so many people make resolutions? It's because they realize that some area of their life needs transformation. Some area of their life needs change. So when we think of new year's resolutions, a lot of people are making resolutions about their diet or their weight or their health, about exercise, even the use of time. And a lot of believers, we make resolutions as well related to spiritual things. Resolutions about our Bible intake and our Bible reading or our prayer life or other things like that. And so on this New Year's Eve, I want to begin by just simply asking you, are there areas of your life that need transforming? As you think back through 2017, you look ahead to 2018, are there areas of your life that need transformation, that need change? I'm not just talking about in terms of exercise. I'm thinking spiritually as well here. Are there areas of your life that need transformation because those areas have eternal consequences? Are there areas in your life that need changing, such as devotion to the Lord, some sin stronghold that you've not been able to let go of, some attitude that dishonors God or hurts other people? I don't know what it is, but is there some area of your life that needs transformation? As we think about the end of the new year and we have a chance to reflect and think about what's coming ahead and we see areas that we need to change, or I should say that need changing, I want us to think about that this morning, but see one truth from scripture this morning. It's simply this. A transformed life is necessary, yet impossible on our own. So as we come to the New Year's Eve and we think about resolutions people make and <clears throat> evaluating our life from the past year and where we're going, I want you to see this morning from the scripture. A transformed life is necessary, friends. It's not optional. Change is not an option for us. It's not just something for super saints or super Christians. For all of us, a transformed life is necessary, yet there's a sobering reminder for us. That transformation that we so desperately need is impossible on our own. So turn to John chapter 15. We're back in the Gospel of John this morning as we continue our journey through it. Over this past year in 2017, we made it through 41 sermons in the Gospel of John. We're number 42 today. And by God's grace, we'll keep pressing ahead through John in 2018 here. And the providence of God, on this New Year's Eve day, we come to John 15. And I cannot think of a more appropriate text for the end of the current year and the beginning of the new year. And the providence of God, He's given us a text that speaks very pointedly to where we are today as we think about uh, evaluating where we are and where we want to go this next year. We're going to see this morning what God requires of us. We're also going to see the inadequacy of ourselves to even do it. And I pray this morning this text will help us really see where we are spiritually and it'll drive us to depend on him. And God will show us through the work of his spirit illuminating his word what areas of our life need transforming and how we're so desperate for him to do that work. So would you pray with me before we get into our text this morning? Father God, we do come to you in the name and the authority of Christ, knowing that we cannot come in our own strength. We cannot come just marching into your throne room of grace on our own. We can only come before you knowing that we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. But we would dare not approach you apart from knowing that when you look at us, you see Christ and his righteousness, and we can now enter your throne room. We can come before you boldly, singing these praises we've already sung, proclaiming your greatness, and now coming before you humbly asking, Lord, to, to open your word to us, And so let it come alive to us. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'll do what only you can do this day. Because all of us come in with different situations, different areas of our lives that need you to prune and transform us. And Lord, I can't speak to every one of those, but Lord, you can. So I ask this day, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would just move in each of our hearts. You Let us see your greatness, your bigness this day, your might, your power, and yet your love for us. And let us see how you're working in our lives to bring you glory and to transform us that we can be who you've called us to be. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, where are we in the Gospel of John right now? Just to remind you, if you're visiting with us, where we are as we're progressing through this, and all of us, a quick refresher. When we got to the end of chapter 12 some weeks ago, we got to the end of Jesus' public ministry. We got to the end of him appealing to the crowds. If you remember way back from John chapter 12, that Jesus gives like a final appeal to people. He gives really strong words. And we saw that Jesus' words are either going to drive us to him in the light or drive us to the darkness. There's no standing still with Jesus. Either we're going to be drawn to him or we're going to be repulsed by him. When we got to chapter 13 over these last few weeks, we're seeing his conversation with the disciples the night before he's crucified. We're in the middle of what's called the upper room discourse, this conversation Jesus has with his disciples. And this is all happening on Thursday night before he gets crucified on Friday. So the text we're going to read this morning, Jesus speaks to his disciples less than 24 hours before he goes to the cross. He's telling his disciples some really important, really significant, really weighty things in this final night before he is Crucified. What have we seen him talking about? Well, he began his evening with them in the upper room by washing their feet. If you remember, that wasn't just a nice gesture he did. He was rebuking them because they were arguing about who was the greatest. And so Jesus rebukes them by washing their feet. And we saw, and it's important for this morning from that, that text, that in his love for us, God doesn't leave us where he is, where we are, excuse me. He changes us. He doesn't just save us, but he changes us. And the whole theme of what I'm seeing so far in these chapters is as he's speaking in the upper room is God changes us. He calls us to love others. He changes us in how we treat others. He calls us not just to live for what He can give us. He calls us to love Him for Him. Then we saw two weeks ago that He gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's presence in us is unmistakable. And all throughout this, the key idea here is if we really know Christ, friends, something's going to be different in our lives. It's going to be unmistakable, and He is going to change us. And we'll see that again in John chapter 15 this morning, that a transformed life is necessary, yet impossible on our own. So I want us to hear the words of Jesus to his disciples this evening before he is crucified. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm in John chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8 this morning for our consideration. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. John 15:1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. May God bless the reading of this word. Thank you, and you may be seated there. What we're looking at this morning in John 15, in these first eight verses, is a metaphor. So back to elementary school English here. What is a metaphor? A metaphor is an image that teaches us about something else that represents... Something else and what is the metaphor that Jesus is describing? It says that the Father, God the Father is the vine dresser. in fact, in the Greek, the word is just simply farmer he 's the one who owns the land he 's the one who's sovereign he 's the one who is in control of all things. So the Father is the vine dresser who's doing the work here. The vine here represents Jesus, God the Son, the branch is us in Christ, his followers, and fruit are things that change in our lives because of being connected to Jesus, and we 'll see more of what that means in a minute, but the whole point of this metaphor is that a transformed life is necessary, yet impossible on our own. So let's just kind of take that one idea at a time. First of all, a transformed life is necessary. Friends, there is an idea that is really prominent in American Christianity that really concerns me because it's so unbiblical. And that's the idea of what you call a carnal Christian or a worldly Christian. It's, it's all over our country. It's all over the world, for that matter. It's the idea that, well, I prayed a prayer... I'm going to heaven because I asked Jesus into my heart. Yeah, I may go to church on occasion, but you know, I don't have to really sell out for him. I don't have to live for him. I can live like the world all week long, but I know I'm okay because I'm going to heaven. And that idea fills the streets of America. People who think they're okay, but there's no transformation in their life. I hope you've seen through these first 14 chapters of John that that's just not possible. And this morning's text makes it even more clear that there is no such thing as a worldly Christian or a carnal Christian. A transformation, a transformed life is necessary. If we really are in Christ, our lives have to be and will be different. Look back at verses 1 and 2 of John 15 here. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear fruit more fruit. Friends, the expectation of God the Father and God the Son is that every follower of Jesus bears fruit. Everyone who claims the name of Christ will be bearing fruit. Now, what do I mean by that? That doesn't mean that oranges are going to start growing out of your armpits, or grapes are going to start coming out of your noses, or you're going to have apples coming out of your ears. That's not we're talking What do we mean? We use the word fruit a lot. Do you have a fruit-filled life? What in the world are we talking about when we talk about fruit? Well, remember, this is a metaphor. It's a familiar image in scripture, but it's not one that's defined here. So I want us to glance through quickly on the screen a few passages to get a big picture of what does it mean when Jesus says we should bear fruit. First of all, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus simply says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? If we're bearing fruit, that means our life is transformed in how we approach sin. Bearing fruit, part of that includes the fact when we sin and we will sin How do we handle it? We repent. We deal with our sin. If we are really in Christ, part of the fruit, part of the transformation will be, we don't just sin and keep on sinning and not care about it. We repent when we sin and we turn back to the Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 22 gives us more insight on fruit as well. It says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So it does not mean that we have fruit when we abide in Christ? The fruit is that he is freeing us from sin's power. If we are really in Christ, part of the fruit is that we will see sin's grip on us weakening. We're no longer slaves to sin. We now are slaves. We belong to the Lord. And there's this idea of sanctification, growing in godliness all the way until we see him face to face. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, perhaps the most classic text on what it means to bear fruit in our Christian lives. But the fruit of the Spirit, and let me just pause there realize this is singular. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit. You can't pick and choose. Well, I'm going to show love, but I don't want to be patient when I'm driving down Eastern Boulevard. Like, you can't pick and choose the fruit here. This is either we have it or we don't. Either the Holy Spirit has control and is manifesting this change in us or not. So Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Then in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What does it mean that we bear fruit? Again, not that we grow oranges. But as the Holy Spirit controls us, what starts to be manifest in our life are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, general self-control. We see these things being manifest, transformation happening in our life if we are in Christ. But that's not the only evidence of fruit in our life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6 through 10 gives us some insight as well. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them, with the sons of disobedience. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What does it mean that we bear fruit... It means that we are living in the light. Our lives are reflecting the light of Christ. And good works are coming. Things are happening because of who we are in Christ. We are not like the world, the sons of disobedience. We are different because of Jesus. Holiness is happening in our life. And the last one, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Part of the fruit is we're knowing more of who God is. We're increasing His knowledge and we're bearing fruit. Our lives are being changed because of what He has done in this. We could go on and on. There's a lot more text in Scripture, but that's just five to get us the big picture. Fruit is a changed life. Fruit is receiving. If you think back to early in John, we said true belief is receiving a radical transformation from above. That's what it is. If we believe, we will bear fruit. And that fruit is we are radically transformed. We repent of our sins when we fall. We grow in godliness. We have freedom from sin's power in our life. We make a difference for the Lord. We are different and there's attitudes of Christ are obvious in our life. Friends, that type of transformation is necessary. It's not an option. It's not just for the pastors, elders, and deacons. It's not just for missionaries. It's for every Christian. What I just read is to be, for all of us, the normal, everyday Christian life. What I just read is not like some higher level Christianity that the super Christians get to. What I just read is to be normal in your life and my life every moment of every day. The question is, is that normal for us? There's serious consequences if it's not, and that's where we need to go back to the text here. And see, so look back in John 15, verse two. This is why it's such a serious matter for us. Look in verse two. Jesus says, "Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away." Now, let's just pause there. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, that doesn't have what I just described, what does he do with it? Say it with me. What's he? Do? What's he in verse two? He does. If, the, if branches lack these, what we we're just describing, he does what to it? He takes it away. What in the world does that mean? That means being removed from fellowship with God, being removed from relationship with the Lord. This image is stressed for us here in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So connect the imagery here. If you abide, there's fruit, there's transformation. If you do not abide, there's no fruit. For those who do not abide where there's no fruit, there's no transformation, verse 6 explains the consequences. If anyone does not abide in me... He is thrown away, there it is again, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Friends, fire in the Bible is always an image for judgment. It's not a happy thought. I think at Christmas time, I think of our Christmas tree by the fireplace and sitting on the sofa, looking at this nice, happy fireplace, and it brings warm thoughts to us. When you hear the word fire in the Bible, you don't think warm, happy thoughts like our fireplace at Christmas. Fire in the Bible is an image of judgment and severe judgment on those who do not believe. Hell is a very real place. Scripture is very clear on that. And it's for eternity because our sin is an offense against God's vast holiness. And it can only be punished either by a perfect substitute Christ on the cross or by us for all eternity. And we don't like to dwell on that. It's not what people like to think on. But Jesus talks about it. And this imagery of those who do not bear fruit face judgment is not unique to John's gospel. I want you to hold your finger there because we're coming back to it. But go to Matthew chapter 3 for just a minute. This idea is so important. I want you to see it from another place besides John, because Jesus talks about it much earlier in his ministry, and he's just basically reminding the disciples of truth that he had already talked about a long time before that. And so, sorry, I said Matthew 3. I meant Matthew chapter 7. I'm sorry about that. Matthew chapter 7. So flip over just a few more pages. Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus is speaking here, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, about false prophets. So that's the context of what's going on. But in the context of that, there's a lot of application of what happens if there's no transformation in our lives? So Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their what? You'll recognize, Say it again. You'll recognize them by their what? You'll recognize them by their fruits, or grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good what? Fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad what? Fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad what? Nor can a diseased tree bear good... Exactly. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Friends, those who do not know Christ, whose lives are not transformed by Him, their lives show that. And they will face judgment for that one day. If we are really in Christ, we're not going to bear bad fruit. Obviously, we're going to sin. Scripture's is that. But our consistent power in our life is not going to be bad fruit. There's going to be transformation In our lives. Look at how Jesus continues, still in verse 20 there. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Then verse 21. These are some of the most sobering words, I think, in all Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. First, let's connect that as you turn back to John 15 to what I think this means for today for us. There's going to be many people who stand before the Lord at judgment. And God's going to say to you, I never knew you. Look at your life. There's no, there's no change. There's no evidence that ever changed you. And they're going to say, but Lord, didn't I pray the sinner's prayer at youth camp? Didn't I go to church? I know, I know I didn't care about you the rest of the week, but didn't I do these things? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Friends, for those who really believe who have Christ in them, there will be transformation in our life. Look back at John 15, verse 8. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Friends, let's be clear here. The fruit does not save us. The change that we're doing does not save us. It is the outworking evidence of what He's already done in our heart. If God the Father saves us, if Christ has redeemed us through the cross, if the Holy Spirit has filled us, What we saw two weeks ago in John 14, it'll be unmistakable. If we know God, it will lead to change in our life. There's no way to have the presence of the Almighty, the great I Am who we were just singing about, to have His presence very much in our lives and go on just living like the world and no change. That's impossible. If we know Christ and He is in us, our lives will be different. It it proves to us, it proves to others that we are His disciples. Not that those works save us, they're the outworking evidence that He really has changed us on the inside here. But don't miss this. There's something else amazing in verse 8 here on this. When our lives are transformed because of our belief in Him, when we've received that radical transformation from above, look at what it says in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. Friends, when our lives are transformed, God gets the glory for it. Not us on this. All throughout John, it talks about Jesus glorifying the Father. And friends, when we live like Jesus is our Lord... This is, this is amazing. We glorify the Father as well. Our transformed life brings God glory when we're submitting to Christ as our Lord. It's what we're made to do, to do. In Isaiah 43, God says, These are people whom I created for my glory. So friends, a transformed life is necessary. It's not an option for us because it glorifies God. It enables us to be who we've made to be. It's a mark of true belief. And so friends, if there's no transformation in our hearts, if there's no change in our lives, if there's no fruit that's a pretty good sign we're probably not in Christ. And so if that's you, my plea to you is not to make New Year's resolutions, but to take an honest look at your heart and soul, examine yourself, and look into your heart. Is there change? Not because you try hard, but is there change because of what God has done for you? Because you believe and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, and your life is different because of that. But friends, after that question, I think too often we stop there. And if we stop there with, I need to transform life, we end up in a dangerous world of moralism. We end up in a dangerous world of, I just need to try hard This year, I'm just going to try to read my Bible more. This year, I'm going to try to stop that sin pattern. I'm going to try, try, try. And friends, that's a moralistic approach to the life. That's not the gospel. Friends, a transformed life is necessary. The second part is just as important. It's impossible on our own. A transformed life is necessary, but it's impossible on our own. Look back at verse 5 of John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do some things if you strive hard enough. What's the word there then? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Say it again. Apart from you can do what? Nothing. nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing that will have any eternal value. Nothing that will have any transformation in our lives. Anything good for the kingdom, there will be nothing on that. We cannot make spiritual growth in 2018. We cannot see sin patterns broken in 2018. We cannot grow in our understanding of God. We can't even read the Bible more apart from Christ doing it for us in our lives. It is impossible on our own. I mean, think about it. I don't know if any of you like yard work. Y'all know I love yard work. Yard work is restful and therapeutic, and I love getting out and doing it. When I cut branches off trees, when I trim trees, which is a lot of fun, especially when I get a chainsaw out to do it. But, you know, when you cut down tree branches and stuff, and you put them by the road, if I do that at 10 o'clock in the morning, by 5 o'clock, do the leaves look nice and lush green anymore? They're already starting to wither. By the next morning, if, it's, if I do this on Thursday and the trash truck comes on Wednesday, by the next day or two, they're getting kind of brown. And by the week it's taking for the city to get by and pick it up, it is like shriveled and dead. That is the image that Jesus is trying to convey here for us in verse 5. Again, listen to verse 5 again. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, when I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, when you're cut off from him, you can do nothing. Even in this, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he's using the emphatic in the Greek. That means it's almost like shouting here, I, see this is Jesus speaking, I am the vine, you all are the branches. Don't confuse those roles. I am the vine, you are the the branches on this. And yet, how often, friends, do we confuse those roles? And we act like we're the vine. And we act like we're self-sufficient. And we act like we're okay and we can just figure this out if we just try harder in this. Jesus is emphatic here. He alone is a vine and we are the branches totally dependent upon Him. We can do nothing apart from Him. So how do we get transformed then? Where's the hope in this? If He's saying, you have to have a transformed life, it's not an option. If you're my child, you have to have a transformed life. But then, He's saying that's not an option, but guess what? You can't do it. What do we do? Where do we turn? We turn back to him because he is the one who can do it for us. Look at what he calls us to do in verse 4. There's the only thing he asks us to do. He doesn't say strive harder in 2018. Make New Year's resolutions in 2018. Just read your Bible more in 2018. Make sure your quiet times are good in 2018. Try to kill that sin. In tw- no, what does he say to us in verse 4? Abide in me and I in you. The only thing he's calling us to do is not to strive harder He's calling us to abide in Him. Now, what does it mean to abide? We use that word a lot, but what does it mean? Abide means to stay somewhere permanently, to dwell. A lot of you traveled on vacation over Christmas, that you weren't abiding there. You went for a day or two and then you came home, or you went for a week or two and you came home. Abiding is where you live, where you reside, where you dwell. To abide in Christ means you remain in Christ. In other words, you are continually in fellowship with Him. Abiding is just a word that describes that we are continuously in fellowship, talking with and experiencing the Lord. So how do you abide? What does that look like? I think it's, we overcomplicate it sometimes. Abiding is really the moment-by-moment decision to be in contact with the Lord. A moment-by-moment decision to experience the Lord. We abide in our daily choices. It's not some big resolution I make for the year, but I abide when I'm driving down the road and I choose to think about the beauty of the day and the surroundings and talk to the Lord. You abide when you're sitting in your classroom at school and instead of just letting your mind wander aimlessly, you start thinking about the goodness of God. Or you start praying for your friend in the seat next to you. You abide when you're at work and you're talking to a coworker, you're having difficulties with them, you choose to pray for that coworker or to speak truth to them or encourage them in Jesus' name. You abide when you love your wife as Christ loved the church, when you choose to obey and all these things. Abiding is simply just the moment-by-moment choices all throughout the day of focusing on the Lord. And so abiding doesn't require you to get alone and into your prayer closet or to get into the sanctuary here. Abiding is something that you can do when you're at school, at work. In the gym, at the ball field, when you're driving down the road, when you're friends. Abiding is simply choosing to focus on God, praying, thinking about Him, and just living as He's called us to live. And friends, that's what He calls us to do. He calls us just to abide, but look at what He does when we abide. Verse 2, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, again, believers, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, who does the work here? God does. I mean, again, when I go outside to do yard work, do I take my clippers and put them on my tree and say, cut yourself now and get yourself shaped upright? No, I don't hand my tree the, the cutters and tell it to trim itself. I, the owner of the property, cut my own bushes. God, the sovereign over all, over us his children, is the one who does the work. We don't, we don't prune ourselves. He prunes us. And the work he does is pruning. And if you do, if you do landscaping stuff, what is pruning? I should let Steve come describe pruning to us more than I can try to describe, but he's our landscaping expert here. But pruning, you do two things. You cut away any of the dead wood around the plant. Anything that's dying and not there, you go ahead and cut it out so it doesn't spread decay. But in pruning, you also cut live tissue. You cut cut healthy living parts of that tree or bush to direct it in the right way. Think about it. My bushes, my trees, even stuff around the property here, if we never pruned it, it would be like lopsided trees. It would be going all sorts of ways. and It would be totally unfocused. But when you cut both the dead and the live, You start to shape it so it becomes what it's supposed to look like here. And that's what God does with us as his children. He prunes us. He cuts away the the dead, the sin. But he also cuts away some of the living stuff as well to focus us on what we need to be and what we need to do. But it's interesting here because in verse 2, Jesus does a little word play here that we miss in the English here. Because the word prune here in verse 2 is actually a word in the Greek that means to clean. It literally means to clean. The best translation we have is to clean, but... Literally, you could read it as he cuts away by cleaning. So let me read it to you a different way. Verse 2. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he cleans by trimming so that it bears more fruit. Then you go to verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What is God doing in our lives? He's the one cleansing us. He's cleansing us from sin's strongholds. He's cleansing us from our selfish patterns. He's the one who's cleansing us, pruning us, changing us, transforming us to be who we are supposed to be. To be. And what a beautiful picture here in verse 2 and 3 of what he does for us. So again, listen again into verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, he cleanses, so that it may bear more fruit. In Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You see what Jesus does? He says, you're already clean. I've already forgiven you because of what I've done. Not because of what you've done. I have forgiven you. In my eyes, you are already clean. I've justified you. I've forgiven you of all your sins. But he's not going to leave us there, like we've seen throughout John 14 and 15. He loves us too much to leave us where we are. He says, yes, I've spoken my word over you. I've forgiven you. I've drawn you to myself. You are now clean, but I'm not going to leave you there. I'm now going to transform you. And that's a process of our whole life. Our forgiveness of sins, when he cleanses us initially, is justification. The moment that he proclaims that we are, we are forgiven because of what Christ has done. But he doesn't leave us there. He sanctifies us. Sanctification is an ongoing process that will not be done until we see Jesus face to face. And he gradually sanctifies us our whole life as he prunes away sin in our life. As he shapes us and molds us into who he has called us to be. And friends, it is all his work. We can't do it, only he can. And don't miss the parallel here. In salvation, salvation is all of him. He has to do it. We can't save ourselves, he has to save us. But what does he call us to do? He calls us to believe. Sanctification is very similar. It's all His work. He calls us to abide. And don't miss that parallel. This is all of His work. Our our, our justification is His work and our sanctification is His work. Our forgiveness is His work. Our growth is His work. But just as we have to believe to follow Him, we have to abide to experience that sanctification. And both require His grace in our lives so that we may believe and so that we may abide. And so friends, on this New Year's Eve day, we think about the end of 2017 and the beginning of 2018, my challenge to you is not to make new year's resolutions. My challenge to you is to take a heartfelt look at your soul, asking the spirit of God to search the depths of your heart and your soul and ask him to show you where you really are with him. I want to give you three questions to think about as you end 2017 and go into 2018. Number one, can we say with certainty that we really are in the vine, that we really are connected with Christ? Because, friends, it has to start there. Can you say with emphatic certainty that you know, you know Jesus in a very real, very personal way, not head knowledge about him, but what we've seen all throughout these 42 weeks in John, that you believe in him, you know him, you can experience him, and so you know him. What verse 8 had talked about, that you're so proving to be his disciple, not because you're striving, but because he's changing you. Can you say emphatically Yes, I am in the vine. I am connected to Christ. He has justified me. He has forgiven me. He has pronounced me clean because of his word over me. Friends, if you cannot say that, that's where you've got to start. Everything else will just be moralism if you don't start there. So my plea to you is if you cannot say with 100% certainty, I am in Christ, I am forgiven, I know God in a personal way, as you come to the end of 2017, why linger, why wait? Start the new year crying out to the Lord like, God I need you. Would you forgive me? Would you change me? Would you give me true belief? Not just the motions I've been going through of church stuff, but I really want to believe and know you. But friends, if you are connected to the vine, you do know Christ. My second question for you is not one of what you're doing, but it's a question of desire. Do you desire to abide in Christ? Do you desire to abide in Christ? If you look over 2017 in this past year, is there evidence that you wanted to know Christ more? Did you want to be in his presence? Did you want to abide with him, I'm not asking what you did, but is there even a desire in your heart for that? A longing to know the one who created you, the one who spoke the universe and the being, the one who has redeemed you. Is there a desire in your heart for that, or has that grown cold and grown faint as well? And if it has, perhaps your prayers in 2017 needs to be Lord, my heart is not, is not warm towards you. I really am not wanting to abide. Be honest with God. That's why I love the book of Psalms. You get honest with God, and it's okay. God already knows what you're thinking and feeling, you don't have to pretend with Him. But get honest with God and tell the Lord, like, Lord, I really don't even desire to abide in you. My life shows I don't have much evidence of that. But God, I don't even know how to ask for it. Would you put the desire in my heart? Would you just end this year, start, the new year, asking God that he might plant the desire to abide in your heart, that he would, in his grace, stir your heart towards him because you know you haven't done that and you can't manufacture that. Again, we can't, we can't resolve to know God more. We ask him to do the work for us. And then number three is do I see evidence of God transforming me? If you're in Christ, you're connected to Him, and there is in your heart a desire to abide with Him and to know Him and to experience Him, not just to go through the motions, but to really know Him, are you seeing the fruit of that in your life? As you look back over 2017 and you think, look ahead to what you want to see God do this year, do you see evidence of God transforming you? Are you further along in your walk with God a year now than you were a year ago? Not because you strived hard, but because He did the work. Because you just were in his presence, he changed you. Are you seeing sin strongholds in your life broken? Are you seeing attitudes changing? Are you seeing areas where God is transforming you? And friends, if you still have the same sin stronghold you had a year ago, I'd encourage you in this year to cry out to the Lord, like, Lord, I need you. I want to abide in you. I need you to pr- do some pruning here. Friends, if you still in your life have anger issues, have addictions to pornography, still struggle with a lying tongue, still struggle with pride, know you're not loving your spouse the way Christ loved the church, children, if you're not obeying your parents, whatever it may be, I don't know what it is in your life that may be that that weak point point where the enemy keeps keeps tempting you to keep falling. My plea to you in 2017 is to realize God doesn't want to leave you there. God didn't save you. He didn't rescue you to leave you bound to your sin strongholds. He saved you to change you so that you might glorify Him and find joy And knowing him. And so as we begin 2018, the third question what you ask is, is God transforming me? And is there some area of your life where you're not seeing transformation? You need to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to convict me afresh of this sin. I need you to change me. Would you stir my heart to hate my sin and to look to you? And would you cry out to the Lord and ask him to start pruning? Friends, it's not a pleasant process when the Lord prunes. But trust me, it's a lot better for him to prune away that sin now than to go years and years and decades of your life This area of your life that you know displeases the Lord, that hurts your fellowship with Him, and hinders you being all that God calls you to be. So friends, as we come to the end of 2017, I just want to ask these three questions again. Can I say with certainty, I'm connected to the vine, I know Christ? Second of all, am I desiring the presence of God? Am I desiring to abide? And third, do I see evidence of God transforming me? And my prayer for myself and you, precious brothers and sisters, as we go into 2018, is that God in His kindness and His grace to us would give us grace to want to abide in Him, grace to want His presence moment by moment in those daily choices, and as we do so, His grace to keep pruning and keep transforming, to make us into the people that He has called us to be. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank You for Your kindness to us and making us, creating us, loving us, Lord Jesus, coming to die for us so that we could be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with You. Lord, I pray for myself and these brothers and sisters. The Lord, as we come to a point in time, on the calendar at least, where a lot of people pause and reflect on the previous year and think about what they want to see different in 2018, God, would you free us from self-dependency? God, would you free us from acting like we're the vine and we can do this on our own? And God, would you just in your kindness and just the, the gentle whisper of your spirit into our ears remind us we're the branches. and God, we're helpless apart from you. And that's a good place for us to be if we can remember that we are the branches and we need you so desperately. So Lord, as we go through 2018, Lord, I pray for myself and these brothers and sisters that you would give us grace upon grace upon grace, Lord, to look to you, to abide in you, to even desire to abide in you. Lord, for that brother and sister who's here today who, or whose heart is not warm towards even wanting to abide, would you stir their heart afresh this day or to even long to be in your presence? Lord, perhaps there's someone who's been abiding in you, maybe these areas to where pruning still needs to happen. Where that printing may just be your conviction right now, speaking in their heart about some sin stronghold in their life. I pray you would do that, Lord, that you would speak to us and you convict us through your Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Show us those areas that are displeasing to you, Where we wanna be changed, we wanna be transformed. Where I pray for myself and for this whole congregation, Lord, that when we come to the end of 2018, a year from now, Lord, we'll look back, not with a pat on the back of how much we've accomplished this year, or how much we've grown, but we, a year from now, look back and just have to fall on our face and worship before you, praising you for your kindness to us and seeing us through the year of changing us, transforming us, teaching us, convicting us and making us more and more into your image. And Lord, we'll give you the praise for what you choose to do or have your way in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song? Lord, I come and I confess bowing here I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart, you're the one who guides my heart, and Lord, I need you. I'm